My name is John Crawford, and I'm excited to be with you guys on Palm Sunday. Um, I am on pastoral staff here. I oversee all of our communities, which are called Redemption Communities. And a little shameless plug here, but if you're looking to get connected into uh, community, into the life of our church, uh, we do something called DNA here, and uh, it starts April 8th. We'd love to have you in there to get you connected into community. So uh, today's Palm Sunday. As we just heard, it's the Sunday before Easter, and due to this, we're actually going to be taking a break from our series in Ephesians this morning. Um, Palm Sunday, historically, throughout church history, has been a time when when Christians would remember and reflect upon Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he rode into Jerusalem as king. And so we're actually, instead of Ephesians this morning, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, specifically Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And what we're going to see, specifically, is that Jesus is a different kind of king, We're going to see that Jesus is a different kind of king because he is faithful, that he comes in peace to bring peace, and that he is the self-sacrificial king. And so before we begin our time together, uh, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people to worship you corporately together for who you are, for what you've done, and what you continue to do in the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts and our affections for you, that we would worship you rightly for who you are this morning, that your spirit would move in this place, Lord. We ask that your spirit would move, and Father, that your spirit would speak through me this morning, Lord, that these would not be my words, but they'd be your words, Father, that you would give me the words to say, and Lord, illuminate your text to us. We love you and praise your name, amen. All right, so if you do not have a Bible, would you raise your hand? Um, Our ushers are making their way down the aisles this morning. Um, And if you do not own a Bible, would you please keep this as a gift? Um, This is our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word so that you can grow in your knowledge and understanding of who God is and the true story of the world that he has written. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. This is in the New Testament. Uh, We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. So Palm Sunday for me, uh, growing up, I grew up in the church, attending church, and it was always this interesting thing to me. Um, Really, it didn't make much sense. Um, You know, growing up in the church, I would go to Sunday school or even to the corporate worship, and I would hear about Palm Sunday. And it seemed really kind of like a random account that didn't fully fit together, right? Because there's Jesus, he all of a sudden appears, and he's riding on this uh, colt uh, or donkey. And he's riding on this donkey into Jerusalem, and a bunch of random people are taking palm trees and waving them at him, and which somehow means that they like him and that they're welcoming him, but then a few days later he gets killed. And it's kind of like, what, what is going on here? And so for me, it never really added up. It didn't really make sense. And the reason why is because I didn't know the backstory. Right? And so we come to this story, the Bible is one story, and we're here in the center of it, and I didn't know the backstory. And so for us to understand the fullness of what Jesus is doing here and his actions as he rides into the temple, it's important that we know the backstory. And so my prayer for us and my prayer as I was preparing this sermon is that we would see very clearly 
what Jesus was doing in his actions in riding to Jerusalem, what he was saying, what he was accomplishing, and the massive implications that that has for the history of the world and specifically our lives. And so, what is the backstory? Uh, the backstory is the Old Testament story, and it goes something like this. In the beginning, God creates the world and everything in it, and he creates the first humans, Adam and Eve, and he declares that it's very good. Creation is good, and God delights in his creation. But sin enters the world through Adam and Eve through their act of willful rebellion against God and what he declares is good for the world and for flourishing. And so sin enters the world, but God had to do something because he loves the world that he made. And so what God does is he enters in and chooses this man named Abraham. And he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm choosing you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you the father of a great nation and through your offspring, the world will be blessed. And so what we see is that through Abraham's offspring, the people of Israel are formed and God chooses Israel to be a vehicle of rescue for the world. Israel is chosen to be a light to the nations, to channel God's blessing to the world. But unfortunately, what we see throughout the Old Testament story is that Israel is too much like their first parents, Adam and Eve, and they sin and they rebel against God and his good purposes for them. And so they sin and they rebel, and due to their continual rebellion, God has to put an end to their rebellion to wake them up, and so he sends them into exile, to foreign captivity. And he sends them into exile as punishment for their rebellion, but also to purify his people, and so they go away to exile under foreign rule and reign for 70 years. And during that time, God had previously dwelled with his people in the temple. And during the time of exile, God's presence left the temple. God no longer dwelled with his people. But God's people don't stay in exile. And they return back to their land. And when they return to the land, they see not only has God left the temple and he no longer dwells with his people, but now they're ruled by a different power. They're ruled by Rome. And so Israel returns home to their land that was once theirs, and now Rome is ruling their land, and Rome is oppressing them. And this actually leads to the Jews' distrust and dislike and hatred of the Gentiles. And so Jewish people didn't like Gentiles. If you don't know what a Gentile is, a Gentile is anyone who is not ethnically Jewish. And so due to this Roman oppression that now God's people are experiencing, they distrust, dislike, and actually hate people that are not ethnically Jewish because of this. And so the Jewish people were expecting God to show up and act, act on their behalf to redeem them, to redeem them from the oppression that they were experiencing. And so this Messiah that they were waiting for, they were expecting to come to destroy Rome. See, the Jewish expectation was for the Messiah to be violent. He was supposed to be violent because he was going to overthrow the powers that were now oppressing them. And then we see that Jesus comes onto the scene. And this is where we pick up in the story. And so uh, join me in uh, chapter 11 of Mark. We're going to look at uh, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem, let's pause there. We see that Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem, and it says they. So we ask, who are they? Who's with Jesus? And so we see that Jesus is with his 12 disciples. His disciples are with him, but there's also another small group of uh, a band of folks, not a musical band, but a band of people um, that are with him, and they're journeying with him to Jerusalem. 
Let's continue. And so now as they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, these are small towns a few miles east of Jerusalem. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And uh, they told them what Jesus said and they let him go. Okay, so you get the scene. Jesus says, hey, go into this village. Prophetically, Jesus knows that there's going to be this colt there that's going to be tied. And so he sends two of his disciples and he says, go into the village and bring me this colt. So a few things, questions that arise. Uh, For one, the majority of the text that we're looking at surrounds a colt which means Mark is doing something. The gospel writer of Mark is doing something. He's trying to draw our attention to the cult, which means we have to ask the question, what is the significance of the cult? And even more than that, what the heck is a cult? Unless you live in Indianapolis, then it's your football team, right? So what is, he, what is a cult even? Um, a cult is simply a young donkey. So there's gonna be this young donkey in the town. And so Jesus knows that it's gonna be there. And Not only does he know that it's going to be there, but he knows what the people's response is going to be. And so uh, it also, another question that arises is, uh, did Jesus just tell his disciples to steal this random colt? Did he just tell his his people to go jack this colt? That comes up, you know, it's like, wait, because at a surface reading, it's like, man, he just told them to go steal this colt. Um, No, that's not what happens. As we can see here, uh, he's borrowing it and he, he says that he's going to return it immediately. And not only that, but the owner of the colt says, hey, you can take it. So he's not telling his disciples to steal the colt. Um, but that's, we still have to ask the question, what is the significance of the colt? What is Mark trying to draw our attention to? And in, in order for us to understand this, we need to flip to our Old Testament to the prophet of Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament. So if you're turning there, it's going to be close to the New Testament. And we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what we see here is that God is speaking to his people through the prophet Zechariah and he's speaking, this is written several hundred years before Jesus actually rides on this colt that we're reading about in the Gospel of Mark. So this is written several hundred years prior and what we see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. We see that Jesus is the coming king that they were waiting for. We see that Jesus is the one who brings salvation to the nations and will bring peace to the nations. We see that he comes humble on this donkey. Jesus is the coming king. What we see is that Jesus is faithful. The king is faithful. 
He is faithful. You see, we live in a world where we experience brokenness all around us. We live in a world where we experience broken promises, broken trust, unfaithfulness. We experience it with our coworkers. We experience it with our friends. We experience it with our family, even with our own spouses. We experience it with our children, with our government and the political candidates that we have. We experience it with ourselves. We're guilty of it ourselves. You see, many of us have been hurt, deeply wounded and grieved, and even this morning, many of you who are sitting in the room still have open wounds because of unfaithfulness, because of brokenness, because of broken promises and broken trust. But every single one of us deeply longs for faithfulness. There's this deep longing for faithfulness in every single one of us, and we celebrate the glimpses of faithfulness that we get to see because this is the way things are intended to be. This is the way that God made the world to work. It's the reason why we celebrate anniversaries because anniversaries are celebration of faithfulness. But even more than that, it's the reason why we rejoice at the 75-year-old couple who has been faithfully married for 50 years, and we rejoice at the 50th anniversary celebration at the long-standing faithfulness through the good times and the bad. It's a beautiful picture of faithfulness, and we rejoice. This is the reason why so many people loved the movie called The Vow that came out a few years ago. Um, hopefully I'm not the only person that saw that. And I know that I'm not the only dude in here that loves a good chick flick or love story. Um, but The Vow is amazing. It's this amazing, amazing story. And it's amazing because it's actually based on a true story. And so the movie, if you have seen it, you know about it. If you don't, watch it. Um, and it stars Channing Tatum. He's the husband, and Rachel McAdams is the wife, okay? And so this is actually based on a true story of a couple named Kim and Cricket Carpenter. And so what happens, if you haven't seen the movie, is that Channing Tatum and Rachel McAdams, they meet, they fall madly in love, and shortly after, they get married. They get married, and recently after their marriage, they get in this horrible car accident, horrible car accident that leaves Rachel McAdams in a coma and she suffers severe brain trauma. She wakes up out of her coma. She doesn't stay in the coma forever. She wakes up out of the coma and once she wakes up out of the coma, due to her severe brain trauma, she has short-term memory loss and she loses the last 18 months of memory. The last 18 months of memory in which she met her husband, they get married, and now she has absolutely no recollection of who this man is, doesn't know that she's married, doesn't know that he's her husband. And what is beautiful about this movie and this true story is that Channing Tatum, the husband, remains faithful to his wife. His wife that no longer knows who he is, he fights for her and he pursues her to make her know him and to, to make her fall back in love with him, the love that they once had. It's this beautiful picture of faithfulness. That's why we love the story is we see his faithfulness and that he is faithful to the promise that he made on the wedding day, the vow that he made, which is why the movie is called The Vow. Regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the heartache, regardless of everything that he was experiencing, he remained faithful to his promise. You see, this is what we long for. And this is 
who we see God is. This is what we see in God. We see that he is faithful and he has been faithful throughout all of history. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt, we see that God keeps his word. From hundreds and hundreds of years prior, God is making good on his word. You see, when someone is always faithful and keeps their promise, we learn to trust them, right? We see this with kids, with little children, with mommies and daddies. Usually it's the dad that's doing stuff that, you know, that breaking all the household rules that they set and then wondering why their kids don't listen to them. Um, that's, my, that's my home, at least. But, uh, you know, with the mommy and daddy where they're on a bed, they're on a sofa, they're on a ledge they shouldn't be on, jump to me. I'll catch you. The first time the child is hesitant, right? I, I don't know if I can, I mean, you're my mom and dad, but I don't know if I can trust you. Through coercion, through encouragement, whatever you do, jump to me, jump to me. They jump, you catch them. Again, 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 right? They jump to you, you catch them. Again, 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 they jump to you, you catch you, you catch them, right? You get the picture. There's this faithfulness. The mommy and daddy keeps their promise and there's this childlike faith that knows I can trust them. They make good on their word. And this is what we see with Jesus is that we can truly believe him and trust him because he always makes good on his word. So you get the picture. Go into the village. Get this colt. They have the colt. Let's continue. Verse 7. I got to turn back there. Still in Zechariah. Verse 7. And they brought the colt, this donkey, to Jesus. And they threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And so, what is going on here? Spreading cloaks, you get the image. Jesus is riding in, there's these cloaks, there's branches, palm branches, other random branches and shrubs that are, they're cutting from fields and they're laying them down. You see, what is going on is that people would spread cloaks and palm branches normatively when there was a king. You see, this was symbolic for welcoming a king. And in ancient Palestine, kings would often ride through cities or towns. And when they would ride through going to war, they would ride on a big majestic horse. Or even better, they would ride in a chariot that was pulled by four big majestic horses. But in ancient Palestine, when kings rode in peace, when kings came in peace, they rode on a donkey. You see, this account is actually the only time that Jesus ever rides on an animal. And he chooses a donkey. Jesus comes in peace and he brings peace. You see, kings riding into Jerusalem was not a foreign concept. It's actually something that happened quite often. Important figures would ride into Jerusalem as messiahs or pseudo-messiahs and they'd be welcomed by the praises of people. One example of this is Judah Maccabees, 150 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was welcomed by the praises of people because he had just won significant military victories against the Seleucid armies. Not only does he win these military victories against these armies, but after he's welcomed into Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple to cleanse the temple of pagan practices and idolatry. But the problem was the kingdom that was expected by Israel didn't come with Judah Maccabees, and with the many others, about 12 different others that were before Jesus that rode into Jerusalem. You see, the Jewish people waited for another king to follow in Judah Maccabees' footsteps, but none of them brought God's kingdom. 
You see, the crowds in Jerusalem would have clearly understood Jesus' actions. They would have clearly understood what Jesus was saying and doing by riding in, and they greeted him with praise. But the crowds that greeted him, and even his own disciples, didn't understand what kind of king Jesus really is, because Jesus is a different kind of king. And so as he rides into Jerusalem, let's pick up in verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So the picture here, he's riding in and people are shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 118, 25, and 26. And Hosanna simply means, save us. And so people are crying out to Jesus as he rides in, save us. And whenever Hosanna is used, it's always used in an act of crying out for urgency. People are urgent and they're crying out to Jesus to save them. But would Jesus fulfill their expectations of Messiah? You say, many of us have gone on vacations before, right? And we've used... Airbnb, VRBO, vacation rental by owner, or maybe we've never done a vacation rental, but we've probably rented a hotel. Um, And what happens as you plan your vacation is you go online onto the website and you get glimpses, right? You get glimpses of what the rental is supposed to be, usually eight or 12 pictures that are different rooms, different angles, most likely photoshopped, and you see, hey, based on these glimpses, this is where we want to go. And so you book the vacation. And it's interesting, the number of people I've talked to this week as I prepared this sermon, um, it's actually kind of funny how this has happened to so many people. But um, So you get these glimpses, and this is where you want to go on vacation, and then you actually show up to the rental, and it's way different than you expected. I mean, I've heard people get in an Airbnb and it's like, yeah, we stayed in some dirty dungeon, you know, of a, of a basement and the pictures were definitely not that. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of funny the, the number of stories I've heard this week. But um, so you get the picture, right? You get glimpses and then you show up and it's way different. You see, this is what Israel was like. Israel had seen glimpses of what the Messiah, the king was supposed to be like. But when he comes, he's actually way different than they imagined. You see, he didn't look how they imagined. He definitely didn't look impressive. He's on a borrowed donkey. And guess what? He had all the power and they didn't know it. You see, Jesus is not the rundown motel room or the sketchy Airbnb. That's not what Jesus is at all. He's far better than Israel could have ever imagined, but they couldn't see it. And they couldn't see it because the Jewish people were looking for, longing for, and expecting a Messiah who would be a military Messiah with political and military power that would overthrow the Roman oppression that they were experiencing. But Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus claimed to be the king of peace. Jesus came with all humility and he came to serve, not to be served. Jesus embodied suffering love. You see, people didn't follow Jesus and praise Jesus because of his military success or power like Judah Maccabees. No, Jesus, people followed Jesus and praised Jesus because of his mighty acts of mercy that he demonstrated everywhere he went. 
And we see this with Bartimaeus, right? At the end of Mark chapter 10, right before we pick up where we're, where we're looking at here in, in Mark 11, there's this man named Bartimaeus who's been blind his entire life. And he hears Jesus coming and he cries out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus has mercy on him. And Jesus heals him and restores this man's sight. He gives a blind man's sight. And what I love about it is that Bartimaeus, at the end of Mark chapter 10, right before we pick up, Bartimaeus picks up his stuff and follows Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. We know that that small band of people that are journeying with Jesus, not only is it his disciples, but it's Bartimaeus that he just healed. And so what we see through Jesus' mighty acts of mercy that he shows, he shows us what the kingdom of God is like. He shows us what his kingdom is like. We get glimpses of heaven on earth through the way Jesus heals, through the way he restores, and through the way he reconciles. You see, Jesus didn't have an army of soldiers with him. He wasn't coming in mighty power as a military leader. No, he had a bunch of ragtag disciples and followers that were with him. His his crew included society's outcasts. His followers were the people that were marginalized and pressed to the margins who were weak and powerless, blind people who who were restored their sight, lepers, people that were raised from the dead. These are the people who are following Jesus. You see, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem screams louder than any word that God is returning to Jerusalem to become king over Israel and over all the nations. Verse 11. So people are shouting, Hosanna, save us, Jesus, save us. And now he enters into Jerusalem. As he entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's interesting. As soon as Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he beelines it straight, straight for the temple, which makes us ask another question. Why? Why does he go to the temple? Why does he hang out with all these people that are praising him? He goes straight to the temple. You see, the temple is the most important symbol in all of Judaism. It's the place where God dwells with his people. But after the exile, the presence of God had left the temple and God was no longer dwelling in the presence of his people. But now, God is actually coming back. He's coming back to the temple in Jesus, but he's not recognized. His people don't recognize him. You see, Jesus enters the temple and the text here, verse 11, it says that he looked around at everything. You see, Jesus goes into the temple. He looks around at everything. He's sizing up the temple. He's sizing it up. And then he leaves because it's late. But what we know is that he is deeply grieved by what he sees. He's deeply grieved by what he sees because in the, in the following verses that we're not going to preach on today due to, the, due to time constraints, um, he returns to the temple. The very next day, Jesus leaves and he's coming back to the temple. He's deeply grieved and so he's coming back to the temple to cleanse the temple. You see, the temple had become something very problematic because it was actually supposed to be the place where all nations and all people would come to acknowledge that Israel's God is the one true God of the world. But instead, it was actually functioning as the opposite. Israel was cutting themselves off from their Gentile neighbors. Once again, Gentile is anyone who's not ethnically Jewish. So Israel's cutting themselves off from anyone who's not ethnically Jewish, and they're living as separatists. 
They're living as separatists and they are failing, massively failing, horrifically failing in their call that God had given them to be a light to the nations. To channel God's blessing to the world, they are failing miserably. Instead of being a channel of blessing, the temple has now become a place of division. It's division between Jew and Gentile. There's ethnic division. It's division between male and female, gender division. It's division between wealthy and poor, those of high social status and the marginalized. We see socioeconomic division. You see, Jesus would have to do something, and so he returns to the temple. And what we see is that where Israel fails to be the channel of God's blessing, Jesus succeeds. Jesus succeeds. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus will bring peace and reconciliation where division and hostility have reigned. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, he will gather people from every nation and tribe, every ethnicity, socioeconomic class, and gender as his witnesses who are united as one by the blood of Jesus. Lastly, Jesus is the self-sacrificial king. Jesus is the self-sacrificial king. So, we see that Jesus journeys into Jerusalem. But he didn't just journey into Jerusalem just to demonstrate that he was humble. He didn't just journey into Jerusalem to show, that, to show his humility or to fulfill prophecy or to cleanse the temple. He did all of these things, and yes, they were important, and yes, he had to do them. They served a purpose, but Jesus journeys to Jerusalem to go to the cross. He goes to the cross, and we know this because he foretells of his impending death and resurrection three times before this, that he is on a mission to the cross. You see, the timing of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is very important because Jesus made it intentional to choose the time when he, would, when he would enter. And so we see that Jesus enters into Jerusalem at the start of Passover week. The start of Passover week, Passover for the, for the nation of Israel was a huge thing for the Jewish people because of what it symbolized. You see, every year Israel would remember their redemption, how God had acted on their behalf to free them from Egyptian oppression and slavery where they were enslaved for 400 years. God acts and redeems them. And so every year the Jews would remember Passover and they would celebrate it. You see, Jesus chose this time, the beginning of Passover week, to enter into Jerusalem because just like the first exodus where he had redeemed, now he is bringing the final exodus. The final exodus, the final Passover. When God would overcome the world and its ruler who is Satan, this is the new exodus. And it's not just for Israel, it's for the whole world. You see, Jesus journeys to the cross willingly. He willingly journeys to the cross so that he can defeat the powers of evil that were withholding his kingdom. This is what Colossians chapter 2 talks about in, in chapter 2 verse 15, is that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and he triumphed over them. There's this victory over the powers, cosmic powers. You see, God has always been the rightful ruler of the world. But he needed to reclaim his kingdom after the powers of evil had usurped it once sin entered the world. And so we see that Jesus willingly journeys to the cross to not only defeat the powers of evil, but Jesus willingly journeys to the cross to be the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of the world so that we can be a part of his kingdom. You see, Jesus is a different kind of king. 
Jesus is not a king who sacrifices his people so that he can live in comfort in his kingdom like most kings. Instead, Jesus leaves his comfort and he sacrifices himself so that people can live. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak through your word. Jesus, you are king, and we praise you. We thank you that you are a different kind of king. We thank you that you pursued your people, that you willingly sacrificed so that people could be a part of your kingdom. Jesus, we thank you that you are a faithful king. We thank you that you come in peace to bring peace. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the self-sacrificial king. We thank you that you went to the cross, but that you didn't stay dead, that you rose from the dead and you ascended to the right hand of the Father where you are on your throne. You are ruling and reigning as king over all of creation and we know that you are coming again to bring heaven to earth and Lord, we long for that day. Amen. Since this is the beginning of Holy Week, let's take some time to reflect, a few moments to reflect on King Jesus' journey into Jerusalem, on King Jesus' journey to the cross. And in a few moments, Andy will come lead us in a time of response.